My name is Nafiz Ahmed. At the moment, I'm writing for The Guardian on the interconnection of um, environmental energy and economic crises and, and the kind of the geopolitics behind all of that and, and the implic- implications of all of that. And uh, my background is international security. I used to be um, an academic at uh, University of Sussex in international relations, um, looking at um, mass violence and the structural causes of mass violence. And this is actually what led me to kind of look deeper at the kind of underlying uh, challenges that we're facing today, such as, you know, climate change, peak oil, and all the rest of it, and how that stuff is actually really changing the world and, and, and creating a heightened danger of of conflict when when you're looking at narrow kind of business as usual kind of ways ways out rather than looking at kind of transformative solutions so I, yeah so i mean I, I wrote the um a book on that called a user's guide to the crisis of civilization and um we also made a film based on the book called the crisis of civilization which people can watch online for free you've you've written a lot recently about how um gas fracking uh is being hugely overhyped and how we may well be looking at peak uranium by 2015 and a study that just said don't go do any more nuclear whatever you do you've written about peak oil when you look at all those things um coming together your analysis is is distinctly at odds with what we increasingly encounter in the mainstream this kind of bullish optimism that a new golden age of fossil fuels is is waiting around the corner um what's your take on the sort of the tension between those two analyses and where and where we find ourselves as a civilization now yeah it is it is interesting because there is there's actually been what well, i i think it's a concerted um public relations effort actually on the part of the fossil fuel industries and the nuclear industry to kind of reassert their their control in the face of what is actually a, a lot of confusion and concern about fossil fuels at the moment due to both climate change as well as concerns about um the uh, you know the viability of maintaining our dependence on fossil fuels given the costs um in you know in, in the kind of the age of kind of when cheap energy is is no longer really an option um i think i think there's been a real concerted effort to re-establish some kind of control over that discourse and to reassert the idea that actually everything's fine um and we don't need to change fundamentally the way that we do things um and and so there really there's a lot of hype um in a lot of these industries and that's kind of a lot of what of my reporting is focused on recently is, has been trying to kind of identify what's the difference between the hype and what and how and how does it kind of between the hype and the facts and how do we square up the reality of of the actual costs of energy these days and the fact that you know energy is a lot more expensive how does that square up with the claims that everything is going to be fine there's going to be we've got abundant uranium we've got abundant shale gas and it's all going to be we can just carry on and it's all very clean everything all these new energies are supposed to be clean and and to be able to sustain industrial growth for the foreseeable future but it does it just doesn't square up with reality you know um so i mean the the reports that i was looking at on shale gas were from a lot of very credible sources you had a guy david hughes who used to work for the canadian government assessing um canada's um national oil and gas supplies for about 30 years um one of the other reports i looked at was by 
um, a woman, Deborah Rogers, who um, is an advisor to the US government on um, the problems facing um, frac- the problems with fracking. And she's actually um, an advisor to the US Department of the Interior. Um, and also there was a report from the Energy Watch Group based in um, Germany, which uh, was authored by um, a physicist. Um, and the Energy Watch Group is, is 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 a network of European scientists that have been looking at these issues for a while. So I thought it was quite interesting that you had a, a whole range of um, different kind of experts from who who were quite kind of separated in their fields of work, but ended up coming to quite similar conclusions, which is that actually um, there has been deliberate efforts to overestimate um, the quantity of shale gas resources, the quantity of unconventional resources in general, including shale oil as well, um, and to overestimate the uh, extent to which we can rely on these and to underestimate the costs of exploiting these resources. And the overall result of, of the research that, that, that these guys put out was that, that when you actually take into account these um, overestimations and underestimations, the picture you come away with is actually quite worrying. Um, and, and, and um, you know, to the extent that we're looking at the idea that, you know, shale gas could really just be a Ponzi scheme, uh, which is the industry is, you know, keeping things afloat, but it's not really going to solve um, our energy problem in the long run um and it, this is a this is really the same kind of picture we're seeing with the the nuclear industry as well um that there is this um there's a gap between the claims of the industry their claims about the cost their claims about the cleanness of nuclear and the fact that, that, that actually there's a lot of evidence that we're, we're facing a uranium supply crunch within the next 10 10 years um and that's actually something that I mean, there was a, a peer-reviewed study that I um, looked at in one of my articles. But there's also a lot of industry concern about this as well. Um, so when you put all of that together and you kind of look at reality of what we're facing in the long run, I mean, ultimately, and Rob, I mean, you uh, you've been working on this issue for a long time as well, and, and you know as well that. Really, in the long run, fossil fuels is 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 the age of fossil fuels is over. This century is the end of the age of fossil fuels, and it doesn't matter which way you look at it. Even if you look at it from an optimistic perspective, you're still looking at fossils de- declining and, and depleting. You know, within the towards the end of the qu- the first quarter of this century, you're looking at, at our space basically running pretty low, cost getting quite high and that impacting the economy impacting our our kind of contemporary industrial way of life and causing a lot of problems if we don't make um those kind of choices now to to change the way we do things and i think that's really the kind of uh, the picture that i'm trying to get across i mean sometimes i don't people get very kind of um bogged down sometimes in the detail of well are we going to peak in 2015 or are we going to peak in in 2020 and no 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 no, it's going to happen in 2035 i mean for me you know kind of a peak in 2030 is is or 2025 is bad enough i mean we, we don't have we need to really start preparing for these issues now already really really late in the day um so so ultimately for me it's just about looking at how we can get across this understanding of if we are looking at the end of the age of fossil fuels for a variety of reasons this century 
then what does the alternative look like and how do we get there? And uh, the, the recent kind of uh, explosion in oil production in the States, um, from, from where, when we were talking about peak oil five years ago, how do you think that that has changed? Do you think that it's more like the report that Dr. Tim Morgan wrote for Tullet Prebon, arguing that it's really about energy return on investment and that we reach a point where the energy return on investment across the board becomes too low to sustain growth. Is that an analysis you agree with? Uh, or what's your sense of actually how peak oil will play out now that the US seems to be uh, upping its production quite substantially? Yeah, I, I think that that analysis is definitely got a lot going for it. I think the energy return investment analysis is very important. Um, I mean, I think what's, what's interesting about the peak oil debate is that um, there has been this idea that has been put out that peak oilers predicted the end of civilization at the point of peak production. Um, and they've also not really understood what it is that the peak oilers were saying. And I think at this point, in the, to the extent that um, most peak oilers did not anticipate um, the extent to which shale gas and fracking would um, be able to ramp up production uh, to some extent in the United States. No, they didn't anticipate that. But equally, most people in the oil industry didn't anticipate that. Nobody really anticipated the extent to which fracking um, would be able to uh, uh, access unconventional oil and gas. On the other hand, um, the fundamental kind of predictions of the kind of core cadre of, of, of peak oil geologists, you know, people like Colin Campbell uh, and others, Actually, what they've been saying has been borne out, and um, just people like Campbell were actually were actually very cautious in their predictions. They had, you know, they'd never really, they'd never ever advocated that civilization would just collapse and, and it would all be the end of everything. But what they did say was that when we had a peak in conventional oil production, um, we would see an increasing shift towards unconventional oil and gas, at which point energy would become a lot more expensive. And this would have an impact on the economy, and we would see that impact, and that impact would increase with time. Um, so when we look at the actual arguments made by the, the, the geologists who've been about peak oil, it's actually quite different from the way it's characterized sometimes in the mainstream, which is this idea that we're running out of oil. People like Campbell never said that we were running out of oil at all. They actually admitted that we have abundant oil reserves, but the issue is the distinction between conventional and unconventional, which I think the mainstream often confuses. And actually, this is something which the industry is exploiting in order to kind of get, get this idea that we've actually got huge amounts of oil and gas and we don't have anything to worry about. And the, the recent estimates by the Energy Information Administration that we have so much um, oil and gas reserves if you take out into account unconventional. I mean, people like Campbell, you know, David Hughes, it's not just about the um, quantity of the reserves, it's about the rate at which you can actually extract those reserves and and refine them and convert them into usable oil and the, and the cost of doing so. Um, what What's pretty much not disputed now when you look at the data um, whether it's from the International Energy Agency or whether it's from the in Energy Information Administration in the US, is that we have pretty much reached a plateau uh, in a conventional crude oil production since 2005. Uh, and it's been going on for more than five years, which is quite, which is unprecedented. 
expected. Um, there's been, you know, sometimes there's a down, you know, there's a down tick. Sometimes there's an uptick in the production, but it's essentially it's a it's a it's a bumpy plateau. Um, none of the kind of conventional players in the industry predicted that plateau, but people like Campbell did. Now, you know, we can debate over whether um, the models that the peak oilers had were completely accurate. A lot of the models that were being used at the time suggested not a plateau but something that would be more of a more of a curve but campbell was quite specific actually in um in 2008 i remember in um speaking to him and he actually had produced a report that um my think tank published institute of policy research and development uh, where he actually predicted a bumpy plateau and he actually said that as this as we continue along this plateau we would continue to kind of as what as prices as we'd hit the, the kind of the when we'd first hit that plateau and prices would go up that would impact the economy the economy would basically go into a recession um, the recession would lower demand and that would create a space for more growth so we then have a we'd have a period of recovery and then again the recovery would hit the ceiling of of um, of, of, of those kind of limits of conventional supply and there's limits of energy costs and again we would see price spikes and then we would hit again another kind of crisis another recession and that seems to be being borne out in the sense that we've we've had consistently uh, high oil prices and consistently volatile oil prices, but they've been volatile within a higher range and we've also seen a persistence in the decline of growth over the last since 2008 we just haven't been able to catch up with growth and in fact um you know the imf has just declared and the world bank have, have declared that growth uh, the original growth forecasts have to they have to slash them again um, because it just doesn't we don't seem to be catching up in time china is is, is slowing down india is slowing down all of this happening in ways that economists last year again were being very bullish about um, but going against their forecasts and against their models so all of that says to me is that actually what the peak oil have been saying is actually exactly what's happening now. What do you think the convergence of the challenges that you identify in the things that you write about uh, mean for economic growth? What are the implications for economic growth? Yeah, um, yeah, I think um, I think actually the, the I think it really at the, at the moment we face. Um, such a, an amazing and unprecedented convergence of different different challenges with, with environmental degradation, uh, climate change, uh, resource uh, depletion, um, and how and these are obviously affecting you know affecting our societies here and now. Um, you know, people talk about what's going to happen in the future, but we're already seeing the impacts on our societies in terms of food production, in terms of, um, you know, challenges to, to the way in which uh, we're, our, our, our societies are able to kind of live and source uh, their, you know, industrial, general industrial production. It's impacting on the prices of everything. Everything is more expensive now. Um, so we're already starting to see the impact. Um, there are some who have who have argued specifically that actually um, the nature of, of of the kind of great recession as we know it today, um, you know, this kind of very specific economic slowdown, global economic slowdown that we've had since 
2008, since the big banking collapse, that this specific event and, and the events that have followed are actually rooted in a wider, deeper problem linked to our dependence on certain types of energy, namely fossil fuels. Um, and I think that's a very plausible argument. And the argument essentially goes something like, you know, we effectively are, are in the age where cheap fossil fuels is no longer really an option. Uh, we're now moving into the age of very expensive energy, um, whichever way you look at it. Um, and our, on, our complete and utter dependence on cheap fossil fuels to basically do everything um, means that as we enter this age of more expensive forms of energy, um, there is going, you know, we're facing this fundamental, fundamental kind of um, baseline problem, which is undermining the ability of industrial civilization to do the things that it's used to doing, um, and it, 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 at, at the cost that it used to do them. And this basically is the driver of this is this is what the argument goes. This is what's keeping growth down. And, and, and keeping the fundamental dampener on growth. Of course, there's, you know, people often talk about debt and the problem of debt. But I think missing from the mainstream analyses is the extent to which the growth that we've had, um, you know, since, say, the Second World War, you know, astronomical levels of, of growth have been correlated with two things. One, the exploitation of, of, of energy, cheap fossil fuels. And uh, two... Um, they've also been correlated with the expansion of debt. And what's interesting really is about this period is that, especially since the 1970s, um, when the economic system began to face certain challenges, you know, pro rates of profit were, were declining. There was an effort to outsource manufacturing to poor developed countries to keep costs down and to maintain higher profits. When you know all of that kind of stopped working, so what what happened is banks turned towards investors. They turned towards financialization, and they realized that actually you can make huge amounts of profit by lending. The more you lend to people, the more they have to pay you back, and you get a return on your interest. And actually, this is an amazing way of of making profits. Um, and this isn't actually this is no secret. I mean, this is actually a well known. Reality and in fact, mainstream economists often see debt and the creation of credit as a good thing, um, and and they recognise that there's a link between um, high levels of growth and, and high levels of credit and debt in the economy. Um, what, what what where obviously it falls apart is that none of these economists anticipated um, you know how how these things would converge and lead to this 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 collapse of the banking system in 2008 and the ongoing recession that we're seeing now which you know there's no sign of it abating in fact all the recent uh, statistics that have emerged over the last in this in this last six months up to now from the world bank from the imf from various um ratings agencies and, and and major banks all of them are saying growth is not really all our all our growth forecasts have to be slashed we were over optimistic again um, all the growth in emerging markets that we were hope, you know, we were banking on that those guys in China and India and elsewhere were going to keep the global economy chugging along. Well, okay, it's actually not going to happen um, in the way we originally thought it was going to happen. So again, once again, you know, we, we, we've realised that these models that we're relying on are unable to keep up with reality. Um, and I think that's because they failed to realise that the debt, that the, this acceleration of debt and credit.
has been and the ability to to actually service that debt has been premised on this um, abundant availability of cheap fossil fuels and you know this was challenged when we saw the peak of conventional oil production or, or the plateau of conventional oil production from about 2005 onwards you know when suddenly energy was now, now conventional oil was 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 not able to keep up with demand so we had rocketing oil prices um which fed into everything else and this is what kind of made this and this a number of economists have pointed out that this massive impact on cost of living is really what led to people being unable to service their debt they suddenly were uh, unable to afford their basic expenses they were able to afford to to, to pay back those debts and so all that big house of cards that we created over the last 30 40 odd years this bonanza of virtual growth just collapsed like a bubble um and i think that's where we're at now is you know you've got this kind of choice ahead of us where you know governments at the moment are still kind of ostrich-like thinking that well you know let's just go back to the same old ways of you know printing money you know lots of quantitative easing we'll you know let's start kickstart lending again to get you know m- capital flowing and, and people will be able to borrow and they'll be, people will be able to buy things again and that's it's all going to be fine um but it's it's not going to work because we don't have one you know we're already quite over leveraged even and if you look at the levels of debt we haven't actually solved that problem at all you know effectively you know a lot of our financial institutions effectively are still insolvent um but it's kind of all been brushed onto the carpet but the other problem of course is that well where how are we going to sustain this renewed drive to 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 create all this you know credit and and to expand you know material accumulation production and consumption when our resources are are just much more expensive and where is this going and how long can we continue um and i think the you know the the kind of that model of limits to growth that was put out in the 70s by people like dennis meadows and others um they were actually quite spot on and they they anticipated that we would start to hit these kind of limits within the first uh, decade of the of the 21st century and they said by 2030 you know we really you know these kind of uh, symptoms that we're seeing now are going to be much more magnified unless we change business as usual in some some way dramatically um so i my view really is that um you know we're looking at at an, a new era of either slow growth heading towards um you know ultimately we're looking at this 21st century being the age of the end of growth really and we have to start thinking about an alternative economic model um that you know we recognize that material accumulation and, and it has has played a role in 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 giving us certain um you know certain amazing technologies and the ability to do things and obviously there's scientific innovation and none of those things are in themselves bad things but they've but they've also come at a cost and i think we're at a point now where we can make that choice to say well maybe maybe we can harness the positive that we have developed with industrial civilization and and develop something new a post-growth post-industrial form of civilization that doesn't reject science doesn't reject technology but recognizes that ultimately you have to be living within the limits of your environmental systems and that's unfortunately we don't really see that happening in mainstream economics you know it's very very difficult to get economists to realize that the economy doesn't exist in the silo you do it does it is part it's embedded in in the environment 
Mm. I went to a, a talk recently by Nicholas Stern, who wrote the Stern Report, and he was talking about, um, uh, and it was a conference was about growth, and he said we have to talk about economic growth because otherwise India and China won't talk to us seriously about climate change. That basically India and China won't take us seriously if we unless we talk about growth, which I thought was fascinating. Firstly, from the idea that China gives a flying toss what we do. The idea, this really arrogant idea still that China is watching every move that we make. But also I was thinking, actually, I'm sure we could put together, if we nationally put together a really coherent story that said, North Sea oil and gas is running out, we're going to introduce tradable energy quotas, we're going to be looking at embracing this as an opportunity, moving things locally, seeing that as empowering and training and blah, 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 blah. Then I've, China may well look at us and go, oh, thank God, you know. And I wondered, you know, for you, you, you know, you were just saying we need to move to a post-growth society in that sense and start telling a different story. If you were, uh, um, if if you were asked by Nicola Stern to compose uh, the new story to tell to China about how, what things could be like, about what the UK's new story would be, what would some of its elements be for you? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, for me. Um... Um, yeah, def- definitely. I think I- I'm, I'm with you on your the idea of that Britain should play a, a different kind of leadership role at the moment. <laughs> it's quite the opposite, really, of what we should be doing. Um, but I think, yeah, if I was, if I, if Nicholas Stern, which he would never do, <laughs> came to me and said, "Feast, <laughs> produce the plan, save the world," then I, you know, I, I would be thinking along the lines of, I, you know, I would look to China and I would say, actually, and this is actually quite interesting because um, I did an article just last week on, on the end of growth, actually. And um, I, I quoted uh, Jeremy Grantham, who um, just put out in his latest newsletter. Uh, he's, in, he's, you know, he's like a kind of billionaire investor. He's made loads of money of predicting all the major stock market bubbles over the last 15 years. Um, you know, so, you know, someone who's kind of is a capitalist, made loads of profits um, from, from capitalism. Um, but rec- but his speaks speaks a, a great deal about the problems of capitalism and about the limits, the environmental limits to to capital accumulation, and is talking a lot actually about a new kind of model. He doesn't really quite say no growth, but he talks about there need the need to be a new model which is much more in parity with the environment. I mean, the language is there; it's quite interesting. Um, maybe he doesn't go all the way, but. He's actually said something about China and he's actually, it's interesting how he said his last great hope is that China, uh, which is invested of, of all the great powers, is invested the most in renewable energies um, and is actually quite rapidly looking to um, kind of adapt to, to climate change in certain ways. They're looking at their, you know, urban planning and things like that in some ways. Um and now starting to think also about their pro- their problems of pollution. So he's looking to China as the next great hope and hoping that maybe China will re- will realize that this is what's coming and they will embark on a you know 20 to 30 year crash plan to transition towards um, a much more stable kind of economy. And he's hoping that you know if China does this then that will force the rest of the world to kind of be like well if China's going to do that we're going to have to basically, um, we're going to have to do some, we're going to have to keep up with that. And that would spur similar kind of efforts everywhere else. I, I don't know the plausibility of that. But I mean, I, I do think that um, 
I, I do think that whoever, if, if, a, if a country did decide that, wait a minute, we're going to face up to the reality that, um, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong with the economic system and, and the way it's working and it's it, the way it's, it's links up to politics and we need to change this paradigm completely and, and move towards something else. I actually think that a country like Britain, with its record, um, would would actually people would look to Britain and say, "Wow, you know, maybe we should start doing this." And it, to some extent, that's already happening. I mean, if you look to Germany, it, by all means, it's not a perfect example. Um, there are lots of problems in Germany, but I think looking at the way in which the renewable energy sector has worked there, uh, it is an inspiration. You know, you, you know, with with the, it, it's it, there's been a rapid. I think it's something. Is it fifty percent of you know they've half the, they've managed to get fifty percent of their electricity now from renewables, and I think fifty percent of that is owned by people, um, which is quite an inspiring example. And that's that's an example which has occurred not really through. I mean, of course, the government has feed-in tariffs and things like that, but it's by no means a crash program. You know, it's still very much within the, the existing paradigm of kind of market incentives and all the rest of it. Um, but they've gone pretty far with that. So it shows that there's huge potential. Um, but I do think that beyond just looking at renewable energy technologies, I mean, we have to face up to this reality, which perhaps Nicholas Stern didn't quite face up to, um, that, you know, if, if you had, um, um, I mean, the, the reality is that growth, the astronomical levels of growth that we've had have been based on you know, these astronomical energy inputs. And renewable energy technologies will not enable us to to kind of have that level of, continual material production accumulation and I th but what they might be able to do is certainly um, provide jobs provide stability provide a cleaner infrastructure help us to transition towards um, a much more um, a, more an, an economy which is which has a lot more equilibrium and a lot more internal equality um, and which could sustain um, you know Kind of adequate levels of, of material production and and consumption but i don't think they would sustain the kinds of exponential growth that neoliberal economists you know want to see you know reignited i don't think that's that's possible so i think that's the kind of the missing story from the whole kind of the low you know the low low carbon high growth kind of mythology that is being promulgated by the coalition government at the moment you know we're it's not, not not that their policy is actually low carbon. It's still very high carbon, um, but I don't think that's really a feasible story. But I think it's I think it's facing up to the reality that you know, as people like Richard Wilkinson and others have been telling us that you know we've got to you know and Oliver, you know, Oliver James as well. You know we've got this certain level of material growth and it's provided a certain level of of. Of, of of needs but beyond beyond providing those physical needs it doesn't make us happy it doesn't fulfill us it's not it, it doesn't actually sustain that 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 um level of well-being and happiness that that people really thrive off so when we're thinking about growth and prosperity and we, we do need to look to redefining what these mean um and we need to look towards an economic model that recognizes, yes, there is a place for growth and there is a place for making sure that people have their basic needs met and they're able to eat and they're able to um, have a great place to live and all of that. But that has to be, there has to be something greater than that. And I think all of the challenges that we're facing now, you know, show that 
material material levels of growth can only contribute so much to to well-being and, and so much to a really kind of happy society and there are all these other values whether it's education whether it's you know in in arts and culture um you know generosity compassion all of those things which actually communities thrive off um and then when we when we realize that we start to begin to realize that the model of this alternative post-growth economy that we're looking at is one where people are much more empowered people have a much bigger say in their in their workplaces in their communities they have a bigger stake in all of those chains that we're used to kind of you know those are being used to being disconnected from all of these things like due to globalization you know we get out you know we buy our things from from supermarkets or from big chains which have them produced you know you know hundreds and thousands of miles away whereas you know can we move towards something which is a which is a lot more localized which i think you know the transition town idea is kind of spearheading this very very exciting vision um for communities taking off and i i'm really excited by that because what what really what really inspires me about it is that it's you transition doesn't come up and say here we've got we've got this big manifesto and these are all the answers it says that look you know those hierarchical systems that we've had before you know where where we've got you know government and certain stakeholders you know corporations telling us what to do and telling us how this has to be done those have failed and now really it's up to people to begin to take control of those of those stories and those discourses and start creating them themselves here and now from the grassroots from the ground up and that's what's really exciting for me because it 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 shows that um there is the potential of this of this amazing alternative paradigm where it's about people and people taking control and one one of the things this this interview is is sits in the context of we've been doing a month of posts this this month all about uh, around the the new book that we just did the power of just doing stuff and looking in different uh, from different perspectives at this idea of you know the power that that sits particularly in the context of what you set out earlier in this interview you know in terms of those really big global challenges that we face what do you think is the power that that comes that arises from and that people discover through actually just getting on and deciding they want to be a part of the solution i think fundamentally it changes i mean and and i think this is very necessary it changes the whole paradigm of how a society should run and what what is the driving force of a society what is the driving force of politics and at the moment i think we have there's so much of our economy is caught up in a political system which is very hierarchical very bureaucratic where we've seen an erosion of democracy um you know for a whole range of reasons and it's it's linked up with the nature of capitalism it's linked up with you know the and we've already seen the scandals that have emerged with you know Linton Crosby and the link to fossil fuels in Australia and the link to you know you know dodgy private companies trying to take over the NHS and the link to the tobacco companies i mean so that's the story that's the story of politics at the moment where you know effectively you know the democratic system in many ways um you know it's 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 great that we have one and it's better than a lot of what's out there but it's but it's a broken system um and i think the the idea of just people just getting up and saying well wait a minute should i just wait for government to 
fall and fail at the next negotiating table for climate change? Or should I, you know, should I wait or try and you know, push government to do this or push government to do that? And or can I do something here and now, which actually allows me to tangibly affect my life, the lives of my family and friends, the lives of, of, of the whole community in which I'm living? Um, and that could actually transform not just local politics, but in the long run, it could actually have a national impact. Um, I think that's that's the that's the potential of people just getting up and saying, well, actually, enough is enough. I, I don't need to wait for someone else, for my representatives or my supposed representatives to do something for me or for us. I can actually do it myself and, and, and start moving towards that. And it might not be it might not be everything that I might hope to see. But if I don't do that now, then really what I'm, I'm actually allowing, I'm in a way allowing and, and giving conceding power to these other entities. Whereas actually, if I just take that step forward and take action now, I'm actually taking control and, and taking ownership and moving that step forward and actually taking control of that, taking a bit, taking a bit of that political power back. And I think that's why it's, it's really actually important that people do. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's it's important to lobby and it's important to to be voting and important to be engaged because if obviously if you retract from that space, then that allows those that allows that system to kind of continue without anyone saying anything to it. And that's a bad thing. But at the same time, we should also be pragmatic about how far you can go with that process by itself, because there are these systemic problems with that process. And unless there is a radical change, unless there is a radical shift, if, unless there is massive populist pressure um to kind of to begin moving towards a different vision that system isn't going to change by itself so we need actually very much to have actions which are about taking ownership of our lives here and now um so that doesn't mean just like you know we've got the occupy movement and and the kind of the spin-offs from that and there's lots of ideas about direct action and civil disobedience and again i think all of that is great and it's it's very very important but at the same time, I would, you know, I would like to see people who are involved in direct action or Occupy or things like that actually taking the ideas of transition, for example, and saying, well, I might, I might not just occupy a, a public space. I might actually want to occupy a public space and grow some food. Um, I might want to occupy a public space and start having workshops around what this alternative society should look like. And actually start creating it here and now and start looking at how can we create new methods of exchange? How can we, um, how can we change the, the nature of our local economies? How can we have, how can we have, uh, how can we help our council estates look towards a vision where we're actually um, relying on clean energy, which can benefit our local community and contribute to, to dealing with the, some of the problems that our young people are facing. Let's empower and, and enfranchise our our young people. I think all of those conversations are not, you know, they're starting to take off. And I'm really excited to see that Transition is actually doing a lot of these these things. And there are people in these different movements who are speaking to each other now. But we just, we need to have more of that kind of catalyzing of, of cross-fertilization of, of, of these discussions across our different groups to start having that more holistic and systemic kind of kind of conversation towards, you know, what what is the vision that we would like to see and how can we collectively begin exploring you know different pathways to doing that 
And I think if we did that, the more, if, and we are doing that, you know, there are these seeds now being planted, but if we started to move towards this more concertedly in our different communities, I think it would have a potentially really amazing impact on the national story. And it could change it. It could very, I mean, it's already, I think the government is already kind of realising, British government certainly, that actually transition is is an idea that they need to take note of. And even if they haven't, you know, adopted it, it's something that, you know, they've sometimes the language has been has been used. Sometimes it's just a case of them actually engaging to some extent with transition. But you, you can see that they realize that they can't afford to just ignore it completely. And that's that's a sign of that's a sign of a kind of a small victory. And I think there's a lot we can build on from there. You know, you spend a lot of your time reading about sort of geopolitics, you know, writing about the challenges, these enormous challenges. How do you uh, how do you kind of cope with that yourself? What, what, what mechanisms do you take so that it doesn't just become overwhelming and you get burnt out and exhausted and cynical? How do you sort of manage that within your own life? And would you have any, what tips might you have for other people who are kind of increasingly immersed in looking at these issues? Yeah, um, well, I, I kind of, whenever people ask me this, I always say that I'm a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. And um, I, I kind of, I think if you look at what's, happening here and now you know you look at, at the geopolitical impacts happening in you say the middle east where you know countries like egypt or you know and egypt's actually a really interesting example because you've got here a situation you can see the intractability of it where a lot of the problems that egypt are facing are, are really rooted in these issues that people in in you know who are looking at peak oil and climate change actually it's all happening in egypt you know climate change peak oil played very very key roles in destabilizing the Egyptian government and kind of, um, you know, combined with inequality and debt and political grievances and all the rest of it. So you really have a kind of a microcosm there of what can happen when a society actually, you know, is, is 10 years past its peak of production, it's, it's facing the ravages of climate change, the impact on water scarcity and food production, and you've got rampant unemployment, and there's a, rep there's a repressive state. And, you know, there's no sign really of a, of, a, of a clear solution there. And you kind of, it can be very disempowering to look at that and you kind of say, well, where can we go with that? But I think if you're looking, I've always looked at, looked at this in the long term and I kind of think, well, what the kind of idea that I like to try and get across to people is that when you look at all of these trends globally and look at, you look at the long term kind of where it's going to go, the reality is, is that the 21st century is the is it's the end of industrial civilization as we know it it's not you know by the end of this century this civilization in its current form it cannot survive it will not be here something will have to take its place whether it's going to be something very very negative and you know a, a, a horrible dystopia post-apocalyptic kind of thing mad max world or whether it's something which is um, a lot more positive and a lot more utopian or whether it's something in between ultimately um, that choice of what that world is going to look like is really down to us. It really is down to us. Um, and, and the future is quite open. And the way I see it, and I, I always um, am inspired. I remember the um, a phrase that Noam Chomsky once said, he kind of effectively said, said that if you're going to basically um, kind of say that, well, we're all doomed, you know, there's no point doing anything. You become part of the problem and you've created a self-fulfilling prophecy and you are no longer basically of any use to, to, to humanity because you've now, you've kind of just said that this is how it's going to be and you've now 
disempowered yourself. But if you remain open to the kind of the possibility of change, even if it's a slim possibility, even if we recognize pragmatically that it's it's a, it's a small probability, um, but if you remain open to that probability or that possibility, and you and you and you fight for it, then you become part of that of that shift towards that, and then you remain open into the reality well that's there is a possibility and we could actually create that possibility so i think it's really important that we look we do look long it's, it's clear that things are crazy things are happening now and and i think a lot of crazy things are going to continue to happen for the next uh, two to three decades things probably are going to get worse before they get better but um you know in the long term I think there's a lot of potential for change. And you see, even over the last 10 to 20 years, it's, it's often, you know, when you get bogged down in, in the kind of the, the, the darkness of some of the things that are happening, it's easy to forget that actually we've had a lot of progress in the last 10 to 20 years, certainly in terms of waking up. Um, you go back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and, you know, people, you know, you if you started talking about energy depletion or climate change or you know, you know, foreign policy or, you know, the banks, the problems with the banks, you know, people would, would have laughed at you and you would have been in a tiny minority. But now you find that you look at all the opinion polls and even with all of the kind of den climate denialism and with all of the obfuscation that's in the media and the lack of understanding, the lack of holistic thinking, still you have overwhelming majorities of people recognize that climate change is real. It's a problem. People are concerned about our energy use. They're concerned about um, the banks, nobody trusts the banks. Very few people trust their politicians. They, they're very, very disillusioned with the existing political system. Um, very few people are, you know, believe that the Iraq war was a good thing. You know, we're very skeptical of the Iraq war. Most people want our troops to come home from Afghanistan. Um, there's a lot across the board. There's actually been a, a surprising convergence of public opinion on, on a lot of different issues, which point towards if you look at them in a values-based way, they point towards um, values which are much more about peace, about um, about kind of making sure that we're living with, with more respect for our environment, looking towards equality, looking towards maintaining you know steady levels of employment in our societies, and they all of them delegitimize the existing system in many different ways. But what's missing from that? I think is 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 the coherence of an alternative, and the coherence of a, a coherence of two things: the coherence of the diagnosis and the prognosis. You know, the people are confused about why these things are happening, and they're confused about where where we should go with them. And that's kind of what's holding us back, I think, from developing a, a viable alternative, a set of alternative visions or movements which can actually do stuff effectively, because of that kind of lack of coherency you know, in that kind of understanding and that vision. Um, so I think, you know, that it, it kind of explains why we've had this eruption of, of social movements in the last few years, especially since the major uh, banking collapse of 2008. We, you know, we've had lots of social, we've had the Occupy movement, we've had the Arab Spring, we've still got lots and lots of protest movements going on, breaking out Turkey, Brazil, you know, but, you know, we're not quite sure where to go with those movements. But I think it's, what that says to me is that we shouldn't assume from looking just at the bad things that everything is just really bad because people are starting to wake up. People are recognizing that something is wrong and they want a change, but they don't know what they want. They don't know where to go. And I think that's why it's so important that people who are already kind of active, um, already kind of exploring ideas, exploring solutions, 
recognize that, well, actually, all we need to do is start speaking out and kind of giving more coherence to that story and communicating it on a wider basis. And we'll start to see there's a very, very receptive audience. People are very, really hungry, actually, for answers, hungry for solutions, hungry for alternatives. So really, this is actually an unprecedented opportunity. It's, it's, a, it's an unprecedented crisis, but it's also an unprecedented opportunity to dreamweave and to, to really say, well, actually, everything is going you know, to go to pot in the next 20 to 30 years if we don't change. So this is actually an opportunity to, to think about you know, just to, to think outside of the box and say, well, actually, you know, 30 years ago, it might have been ridiculous to say that we could have our, all our communities growing their own food and, and, and you know, living in a, 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 a prosperity which which is based on, on well-being and not on just unlimited growth. But now we can actually talk about that and we can think about it and you won't just get laughed out of the room because, you know, the mainstream doesn't have the answers. So I think there is a massive opportunity to create a, um an alternative you know and it's going to be a big struggle and it's going to get really bad it's going to it's going to get nasty but that doesn't mean that there isn't going to be a way out at the end